0: Uh, worshiping with you. I was struck just there that how wonderful thing it, it, it is that I can come to a place I've never been before, and I can immediately uh, connect with people because we, we share the thing that matters most, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can worship together. And It's, just, it's something we, we, we take for granted, but I give thanks to God for it. Well, I want to share something with you this morning from uh, God's Word on the topic, uh, the general topic uh, connecting with our theme this weekend of, of worldviews, and the passage I want to speak from this morning is in Acts chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, I hope you have a copy of God's Word with you, and uh, I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through to the end of the chapter, verse 34. And uh, I'll be reading from the ESV translation. You may may have that, you may not, but um, that's what I'll be using here. So so this is uh, Acts 17, and the account of Paul in Athens, beginning verse 16. This is God's Word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for this uh, fascinating and uh, deeply significant account of Paul at Athens. We pray, uh, as it is, uh, your inspired record of those events that we might learn from them. Uh, we pray that you might speak to us this morning by your Holy Spirit to, to challenge us, to, to encourage us, and I pray that my words this morning uh, would be faithful to your inspired word and would be uh, encouraging uh, to those here, uh, those we consider that task, uh, that unfinished task of taking the gospel to the world. So speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wonder how well you know your Bible. Here's a question to test your Bible knowledge this morning. Are you ready for this? Here's the question. Can you name all four Gospels? <laughs> Can you name all four Gospels? Well, you may think that's a pretty easy question. I imagine even some of the youngest people here could name all four Gospels in the New Testament. But you know, if you can name all four Gospels, you are doing better than the majority of adults in America today. Recent surveys of biblical literacy in the United States have revealed some shocking statistics. 60% of Americans cannot name even five of the Ten Commandments at least 12% of adults think that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. In, in one survey of graduating high school students, over half the students thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And uh, I dare say if that survey were asked today of high school students, I think many of them would say that Sodom and Gomorrah were characters from a Marvel movie. We are right to be shocked and grieved that our society is so ignorant uh, about Scripture. But if we think that as Christians we are facing an unprecedented situation as we try to reach people with the gospel today, we are mistaken. Because that is exactly the situation that the first generation of Christians faced as they proclaimed the gospel, in the great cities of the Roman Empire back in the first century. And that is exactly the situation that Paul faced when he arrived in this city of Athens. Paul had to preach the gospel to biblically illiterate pagans, people who were intelligent, thoughtful, educated, and curious, but who knew next to nothing about the Bible. And even though his preaching in Athens took place 2,000 years ago, there are many similarities between the challenge that he faced then and the challenge that we face today. So we will do well to consider how Paul dealt with those challenges. So we're going to take a close look at this text under three headings this morning. First, a collision of worldviews, a collision of worldviews. Secondly, constructing a biblical worldview. And then thirdly, critiquing an unbiblical worldview. Critiquing an unbiblical worldview. Those will be our three headings as we work through this text. So, beginning first with a collision of worldviews. The early church father, Tertullian, famously asked this rhetorical question, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? What has Jerusalem to do with Athens? Tertullian recognized that there is a sharp antithesis, a sharp contrast between the worldview represented by Jerusalem, the biblical worldview, and the worldview represented by Athens. In our text this morning, however, we see what happened when Jerusalem met Athens, or rather when Jerusalem had a head-on collision with Athens. Paul's encounter with the Athenians represented a collision of worldviews, a clash of fundamentally different understandings about God man and the cosmos now there were many different philosophies represented among the Athenians and in fact at that time there were four major schools of philosophy in the city but Luke's account names two groups in particular perhaps you notice them the Epicureans and the Stoics let me tell you a little bit about each of these groups, so that you understand what it was that Paul was up against. The Epicureans were named after their founder, Epicurus. They believed that all knowledge, everything that we know, comes through sense experience. If you can't see, hear, taste, touch, or smell it, then it's not real. Everything that exists, we can know through our senses. So they were basically materialists. Everything that exists is made of matter, of physical stuff. More specifically, the Epicureans were atomists. What that means is that they held that everything that exists is made up of uh, minute, indivisible particles of matter, tiny little particles of matter, and that includes us. That's what we are made up of, just just atomic particles, material particles. Now, the Epicureans Uh, weren't atheists, strictly speaking, but they did not believe in a single transcendent creator God. Rather, they believed in a plurality of gods, but they took these gods to be material beings like us, part of the material universe. And these gods were actually so distant from us that they are practically irrelevant to our lives. So when it came to ethics the Epicureans rejected the idea of some divine law that you had to obey and rather they advocated a a refined form of hedonism the pursuit of personal pleasure to do what is right is to do what brings you pleasure and so the goal of the moral life for the Epicureans was to pursue long-term happiness in the form of tranquility and peace to enjoy the best pleasures of life, in suitable moderation, not to overdo it. So we might say that these Epicureans were practical atheists. They were practical atheists. They were, in fact, secularists in a certain sense. Then there were the Stoics. The Stoics. The Stoics weren't named after the founder of their school. That was a guy named Zeno. But rather, they were named after the place where the school originally met. This chap Zeno taught uh, under a porch, and the Greek word for a porch is a stoa, and so his followers became known as the Stoics. Uh, we might call them today the porchers, the guys who hung out under the porch, the Porches, the Stoics. The Stoics held some views that were quite similar to the Epicureans. They also believed that all knowledge comes through the senses, and they believed that everything is really physical or material in nature. Everything is is embodied. Everything has a material body of some kind. However, unlike the Epicureans, the Stoics believed that the cosmos is guided and directed by an eternal, rational principle that they called the Logos. The Logos, some sort of eternal principle that is guiding and directing the cosmos. They believed in a deity of sorts, but not in a personal transcendent creator God. Rather, they believed in an impersonal divine fire. They used this metaphor of fire, uh, which pervades the universe, and in fact exists in each one of us. So the the Stoics would say that God is in all of us. The divine is in all of us. So they were pantheists of a sort. Everything is divine at some level. God isn't separate from the universe, distinct from the universe. God pervades the universe and is in each one of us. The Stoics also rejected the idea of human free will. They were, in fact, fatalists. Everything is predetermined, not by the eternal decree of a personal God, but rather by some impersonal principle of reason. And our goal in life for the Stoics is basically to come to terms with that, to come to terms with this fatalism. We have to figure out what role fate has assigned for us in life, and we have to learn to play that role with contentment rather than frustration, just to be, to be satisfied with our lot in life. Whatever will be, will be. So, just learn to go with the flow. That was the Stoic philosophy of life. Now, you may say, well, that's, that's all very interesting, some useful general knowledge. Perhaps it would come in handy for a game of trivial pursuit one day. But what does it have to do with us today, here and now? Well, it's more relevant than you may think. The book of Ecclesiastes says, There's nothing new under the sun. And the philosophies that Paul encountered have in fact recurred throughout human history in various forms right up to the present day. The labels may have changed, but the underlying ideas have not changed. They're still with us. They continue on to the present day with different labels and with, we might say, different wardrobes. There are many secular materialists today, who maintain that there is no transcendent personal creator, there's no divine law that stands over us, and that everything reduces to elementary physical particles. There's no life after death, therefore we should pursue the highest pleasures that we can in this life. These are the modern-day Epicureans. There are many others who deny, again, that there's some transcendent personal creator, but they still want to say that there's some sort of divine reason or purpose that guides the universe, and so they'll ascribe divinity to the universe itself. They're basically pantheists. God and the universe are one. God isn't above us, they will say, rather God is within us. They may even believe in a kind of fate, that our destinies are written in the stars and we need to discover what they are and get in line with the universe, align ourselves with the stars. And there are various ways to do that. Horoscopes, tarot cards, psychic readings, and the sort. In the secular society, these superstitious practices are more prevalent than ever. And in many respects, these are the modern-day Stoics. In any case, what all of the Greek philosophies had in common was a failure to acknowledge a transcendent personal creator who brought the universe into existence out of nothing and who governs human affairs with wisdom and justice. Instead, all of these Greek philosophies saw the universe as self-contained, self-sufficient, self-defining, self-sustaining, self-governing. And that has become the prevailing view in our culture today as well. Now we read that Athens was a city full of idols. That is what Paul discovered when he arrived, a city full of idols. And we may think, well, at least that's a big difference between Paul's day and ours, right? I mean, people today don't bow down to idols, do they? Well, of course they do. It's just that the idols have changed an idol by definition is any god substitute any god substitute anything that we devote ourselves to and try to derive meaning and value from and our cities today are full of idols too idols of power idols of success idols of reputation idols of pleasure Idols of technology, idols of sexuality, idols of health and wealth. In fact, the most common idol in our day may simply be the idol of self. The idol of self. But the point is this. You don't have to be religious to be an idolater. You don't have to be religious to be an idolater. Anyone who rejects the true God will sooner or later erect some kind of false god. If nothing else, they'll set up themselves as their own god. So we can see then that the challenge that Paul faced was not so unlike the challenge that we face today. When Paul preached Jesus Christ in the Athenian marketplace, there was a collision, a collision of worldviews a collision between Paul's biblical worldview and various pagan unbiblical worldviews. So let us consider how Paul responded to this challenge and think about what we can learn from it. There are Basically, two components to Paul's response. As we we look at the, the message that he preached in Athens, we can see two aspects or components to it. The first component is constructive. Constructive. He sets out a biblical worldview to provide the proper framework for understanding the gospel message that he was preaching. The second component of his approach is deconstructive. Deconstructive. He critiques the unbiblical worldviews of the Athenians to expose their foolishness, their irrationality, opening up space for an appreciation of the Christian worldview. You see, the the Athenians simply did not understand the message that Paul was preaching because of their fundamentally unbiblical worldviews. They had a wrong view of God, a wrong view of man, a wrong view of the moral life, a wrong view of the nature of the universe. And so they couldn't begin to make sense of the basic claims of the message of salvation that Paul preached. But they wanted to understand. They wanted to understand what Paul was presenting to them. They were intrigued. They were curious people. Their intellectual appetites had been whetted. They wanted to know more. The Athenians presented Paul with an open door and he walked right on through it. He begins by giving them a rather backhanded compliment. Look at verse 22. This is how he begins. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Well, it sounds maybe like he's commending them for being religious, for being pious. But the word he uses is actually uh, a little ambiguous. It can also mean superstitious with a negative connotation. And as will quickly become clear, Paul actually doesn't have much respect for their religious beliefs and practices. So, he continues, verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul recognizes that all human beings have an innate religious impulse. This is what the reformer John Calvin called a seed of religion. In every human heart there is planted by God, a seed of religion. At the deepest level, everyone knows that there is a God and knows that they have a duty to worship God. That is exactly what Paul argues in the first chapter of his letter to the Romans. We read that earlier. Paul argues that everyone knows God from the creation and they know that they have a duty to to honor Him and to give thanks to Him. But he also argues there that because of sin, that knowledge is suppressed and sometimes it is, in some respects, lost. The Athenians Wanted to worship. They had this religious impulse. But by their own admission, they don't truly know the God that they are supposed to worship. And so Paul says, I'm going to tell you about that God. I'm going to tell you about the true and living God. And then what Paul does is to lay out very concisely the basic contours of a biblical worldview. Now, if you uh, attended the session session earlier this morning, you may recall that I talked about the five ingredients, or the five components of a worldview. Do you remember the acronym? T-A-K-E-S. Theology, anthropology, knowledge, ethics, and salvation. And I think that in what Paul presents here, we can find all five of those ingredients. Start with theology. Theology. Paul sets out the biblical view of God. The first thing he says is, there is only one God. This is huge in a polytheistic, pluralistic culture. There is only one God, one and only one God, and that God is a personal God. And Paul says, this one God created everything else. He made the world and everything in it. And there's a clear distinction between the Creator, who is eternal, and the creation which is not. The creation had a beginning. The creation was brought into existence by the Creator. There's no confusion or overlap between the Creator on one hand and His creation. They are distinct. There's no room for polytheism or pantheism here. Polytheism is the idea that there are many gods, and pantheism Is the idea that the universe itself is God. It confuses God and the universe. In sharp contrast, Paul is setting forth a biblical theism. And this is huge. This is his starting point. And this creator, God, Paul tells them, is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign. That's what it means to be the Lord. The Lord of heaven and earth. He's sovereign. He rules over everything, including us. And this true God, he continues, does not live in temples made by man. Why? Because he's not a physical being. He's not a material being. He's not limited by time and space. God is a transcendent spiritual being. Imagine how that must have sounded to the Epicureans and the Stoics who were fundamentally materialistic, physicalist in their view even of God. And Paul says, what is more, this God is omnipresent. He's not limited to one particular place. He is present everywhere. And this God is utterly self-sufficient, Paul insists. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God isn't dependent on anything else but everything other than God is absolutely dependent on Him. The dependence is entirely one way. God does not depend on the world, but everything in the world depends on God. That is what it means for God to be God. Furthermore, Paul says, this God has a providential control and direction over His creation, including human affairs. He says, He made from one man, Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This is a sovereign, providentially active God. And yet, while this God is sovereign and transcendent, He is also immanent. He is also immanent. He is present. He is active within His creation In a personal way this God wants people to seek after him and indeed Paul says he is not far from each one of us so Paul lays out very concisely a theology a proper view of God but he also then sets forth an anthropology an anthropology a proper view of humanity first of all humans are creatures We are created by God. That's the most fundamentally important thing about us. We are creatures. We are created by God. And we are utterly dependent on God for life and breath and everything. What is more, God made us from one man, which has all kinds of important implications about how we think about our fellow human beings, about how we relate to one another, about how we treat one another. This, friends, is the real basis For universal human rights. People want to talk about human rights today. Well, here we find the biblical basis for that, right here. This idea that we are all descended from one man is also essential for understanding certain Christian doctrines, such as the doctrine of the fall, the doctrine of original sin, and Jesus as the the second Adam who redeems us from the fall. Not only are we created beings, we are, Paul says, God's offspring. We are God's offspring in a way that other creatures, like cats and dogs, are not. Paul is most likely alluding here to the idea that we are created in the image of God. That's what makes us special. We are created in the image of God, another essential element of a biblical worldview. And Paul even acknowledges that at some level, the pagan Greeks... Recognize that, even though they've, they've uh, confused and distorted that biblical truth. So there's an anthropology here. The knowledge element of a worldview is also here. What do we know and how can we know it? Although the, although the Athenians worship an unknown God, that's what they called it, the idol to the unknown God, Paul says that God is knowable. God can be known because he has revealed himself. To all mankind. At some level, everyone knows something about God. There is such a thing as natural revelation. That's what theologians call it natural revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. God is seen in his creation. But that natural revelation has been distorted and suppressed by sinners in an attempt to evade the truth. And so there is widespread ignorance about God. And thus there's a need for, again, what theologians call, Special revelation. That is God's spoken word. God speaking to to, to correct people's misunderstandings of the world. Speaking through his prophets, speaking through his word. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here. He is bringing special divine revelation. He is delivering to the Athenians the teachings of the divinely inspired scriptures and the teachings of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. So now now the Athenians really have no excuse. They already had natural revelation. Now Paul's just given them a bunch of special revelation as well. So the knowledge element of the worldview is here. We also find the ethics component of a biblical worldview in Paul's message. Because God created all things and created us in his image, God literally owns us. Every single human being has made by God stamped on the bottom. Metaphorically speaking, don't go looking for it. That means we have fundamental moral obligations towards God. We have a moral duty to acknowledge Him and to worship Him as our Creator. We have a moral duty to observe His laws and commands, including the command that Paul explicitly mentions here, the command to repent. You notice that's, that's, the, that's the instruction. Paul. This, is, this is what God is saying to you, Athenians. It's time to repent. It's time to repent. Indeed, the very idea of repentance presupposes sin, of course, which in turn presupposes a divine moral law. Repentance implies sin. Sin implies a divine moral law. So we can see the ethics aspect of the worldview Paul is presenting here too. And then lastly, we have the salvation element of a worldview, implicit in what Paul says. As I I was explaining earlier this morning, every worldview has something to say about what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with us, and what is needed to make it right again. And Paul makes crystal clear what the problem is. People have not worshipped God as they should. They've set up idols instead. They've worshipped the creation rather than the creator. God is righteous, but we are not. And Paul says, there's going to be a day of judgment. There's going to be a day of accountability, a day of judgment. Even so, despite this threat of judgment, God in his mercy has provided a way to escape his wrath and his judgment. And that way is a person. Jesus, the very Jesus whom Paul had previously been preaching to the Athenians. And he's going to confirm this day of judgment through Jesus himself, who's going to be the one who brings that judgment ultimately. He's confirmed it by raising him from the dead. Well, here's a here's really important point. Here's the point that we mustn't miss. The salvation element of the biblical worldview, the gospel message itself, only makes sense when it is connected with the other elements of that worldview. Let me say that again. The salvation element of the biblical worldview, what we call the gospel message, only makes sense when it is connected with the other elements of that worldview, a theology, an anthropology, knowledge, ethics. Paul understood that very well. And that is why when he's dealing with intelligent but biblically illiterate pagan Greeks, he took the time to construct a biblical worldview as a framework within which the gospel of Jesus Christ would be meaningful, intelligible, and desirable. And we need to do the same thing today. We need to do the same thing. If we are going to proclaim the gospel to biblically illiterate people in our post-Christian culture today, we've got to build a framework to explain why the gospel message Makes sense and why it's so important. So Paul constructs, he constructs a biblical worldview within which he can preach the gospel message. But that's not all that Paul does in this remarkable sermon at the Areopagus. Not only does he set forth a biblical worldview so that the Athenians have a framework for making sense of the gospel, he also engages in a subtle but powerful critique of their own unbiblical worldviews. As it were, he, he goes on the offense. Now, I'll have to be brief with this point, but hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll get the main sense of what is going on here. Paul is going to critique their unbiblical ideas, their unbiblical view of the world. Despite the differences between the various philosophies and the various religious perspectives that were reflected in Athens, Paul perceived that there's a common theme. Even among all these pagan views, there's a common theme. All of these pagan worldviews either explicitly or implicitly denied that there is a transcendent personal God who created all things and who is both sovereign over his creation and actively present in it and to whom we must give account. All of these pagan philosophies deny that core idea of a God who is like that and to whom we must give account. That is to say, all of these pagan worldviews dethroned God, or they tried to do so. They all engaged in some form of idolatry, exalting and worshipping the creation rather than the creator. They all all engaged in what D.A. Carson has memorably called the de-godding of God, as if that were possible. Of course, it's not. But that's what they were trying to do, the de-godding of God. Of God, And so, in a sense, Paul only has to deal with one non-Christian worldview, namely the worldview that denies the God of the Bible. And his critique of that worldview, his deconstruction of that false worldview, has two prongs to it. Two prongs. First, Paul exposes its incoherence. He exposes its incoherence. He exposes its failure to make sense even on its own terms. Look again at verses 2. Uh, 20, 28 and 29. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your, uh, your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. On the one hand, the Athenians wanted to say that we are God's offspring. But on the other hand, They treated God as if he were a creature, as if he was something created by us. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say that man is created in God's image, and then at the same time say that God is created in man's image. That is just incoherent. And yet we find that kind of incoherence in so many non-Christian worldviews. So, Paul points out the the fundamental incoherence in this worldview, but secondly, Paul points to the inherent foolishness of idolatry, the the inherent foolishness of idolatry. Idolatry, by definition, puts something that isn't God into the place of God. It tries to make a non-God play the role of God, but that is inherently foolish. It is doomed to failure. It cannot possibly be intellectually and spiritually fulfilling in the end. Only God can play the role of God. Only God can play the role of God. Only a sovereign, personal creator can be the proper object of our worship. Paul knows that at some deeper level, the Athenians must realize this. He knows that they will never find satisfaction and fulfillment in their idols, and so they are ripe to hear his proclamation of the truth about God. Paul's critique of pagan worldviews is just as applicable today as it was then. We can apply the same kind of critique to the unbiblical worldviews that we encounter in our own society. First, as Paul does, we can expose their incoherence, their contradictory, self-defeating claims. We can show that these worldviews don't even make sense on their own terms. If you join us this evening, we'll look at some examples of that. But secondly, we can also expose their foolish idolatry, their attempts to replace the Creator with created things. Things that, may be good in themselves. There are many good gifts that God gives us in this world, but they're simply unable to play the role of God. When we put them in the place of God, we're putting them in a place they were never intended to be, and they cannot satisfy. As Paul explains in in Romans 1, we read it earlier, there are two basic dimensions to unbelief, suppression and substitution. Suppression and substitution. Suppression of the truths about God that are revealed in the creation. And substitution of created things for the Creator. The substitution of false gods for the true God. That is the, these are the common characteristics of unbelief at Paul's day and in our day as well. Well, let me bring some thing, these things to a, a conclusion. I've described Paul's encounter with the Athenians as a collision, a collision of worldviews. An equally fitting word, however, would be confrontation. Confrontation. There was a confrontation of worldviews and also a confrontation of persons. Although Paul, Paul himself was the one speaking at the Areopagus... The people of Athens weren't primarily involved in a confrontation with Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. No, they were involved in a confrontation with Jesus Christ himself. The the worldview that Paul set forth, the worldview within which Paul operated, was Christ-centered, Christ-governed, and Christ-driven. Just consider how this whole encounter started with the risen Lord Jesus and ended with the risen Lord Jesus. What, what was, why, why was it that Paul was brought to the Areopagus in the first place? Verse 18, because he was preaching Jesus and his resurrection. And then how does his, how does his message at the Areopagus conclude? Verse 31, with Jesus and his resurrection once again. The Apostle Paul engaged in what I call worldview evangelism, worldview evangelism. And it was unashamedly, unavoidably confrontational. It involved bringing unbelievers into a confrontation with Christ, the risen Lord Jesus, the one who will one day judge the world. And that required nothing less than a direct call to repentance. That was Paul's approach to the biblically illiterate unbelievers of his day, and we do well to follow his example. But if we do follow his example, we can expect the same kind of responses as well. Some are going to mock us. Some are going to dismiss us as babbling fools, talking nonsense. Others will say, I'm not persuaded, but let's keep talking about this. And others will, by the grace of God, believe the gospel and become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. How people respond to the message is in God's hands. Thankfully, I wouldn't want it to be in anyone else's hands. But our responsibility is simply to be faithful in proclaiming and explaining that message